Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 100, Dr. Larry Hurtado on God in New Testament Theology. Episode 100? Did I just say that? When I posted my first episode, which was almost exactly two years ago, it was August 19th, 2013, I had no idea that I would actually get up to 100 podcast episodes. I suppose that most podcasts don't ever get up to 100 episodes. I'd be curious about what the percentage is of podcasts that reach that landmark episode number 100 The reason I keep doing this is because of the feedback I get from you, that it has some value to your lives and even some value to your spiritual life. So I want to say thank you to the people who have commented on the blog. Thank you to the people who have sent in audio feedback on a couple of the episodes. Thanks to the people who have shared episodes through social media like Facebook and helped to get the word out about the Trinity's podcast Thanks to the people who have left a rating for the Trinity's podcast in the iTunes store for their country. And a special thanks to those who have given some contributions through PayPal to help offset the costs of putting this on. This is all just produced by me, a poorly paid professor at a state college. If you'd like to give a one-time donation or a monthly donation, just look for those orange buttons on the right side of any blog post at trinities.org. And please keep the feedback coming. There's a very active Facebook group now. Blog comments are usually rolling. And I've had the privilege of corresponding with a number of you by email, getting your reactions to various episodes, finding out other interesting things about your life and your struggles. You probably know people who would be interested in serious thinking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You probably know people who would be interested in a forum where Christians can weigh together reason, tradition, and the Bible to see how it all shakes out, to try, as disciples of Jesus, to think rightly about Jesus, about God, and about the Spirit of God. This is a place where we can hear different perspectives, and we can hear them out fully and thoroughly. It's a place where the wider Christian public can hear Christian scholars in their own words, talking about their own books and articles, talking about the truths that they've discovered. This is a place where we can object in a spirit of friendship, where we can try to explore the pros and cons of different theories with the aim of getting towards the truth. It's a serious podcast. It's a heady podcast. It's not about my personality or what a fun guy I am to hang out with. It's for serious people who are interested in serious things. But it's for people who think that one of the funnest things you can do is to think about God. Anyway, do you know anyone that's serious? Do you know anyone who's serious about loving God with their mind? If you do, please share this podcast with them. Send them an email. Post it on their Facebook wall. Send them a tweet. Let them know about the blog or the Facebook group or our Pinterest boards. Help these other people to find what you found in the Trinity's podcast. I'm not out of ideas. 
God willing, if God supplies the strength, I could do a hundred more. Will you help me? Let's move on then to my interview with Dr. Larry Hurtado about his 2010 book called God in New Testament Theology. Dr. Larry Hurtado is Emeritus Professor of New Testament Language, Literature, and Theology at the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Born in Kansas City, Missouri, over the course of his career, he taught at Regents College in Vancouver, Canada, and the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, ending at the University of Edinburgh. In 2011, he retired as director of the Center for the Study of Christian Origins there. He's a fellow of the Royal Society in Edinburgh and has served as president of the British New Testament Society. The author of many scholarly articles and reviews, his books include a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, 1990, Lord Jesus Christ, Devotion to Jesus and Earliest Christianity, 2003, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? Historical Questions about Earliest Devotion to Jesus, 2005, The Earliest Christian Artifacts, Manuscripts and Christian Origins, 2006, and he's perhaps best known for his book, One God, One Lord, Early Christian Devotion and Ancient Jewish Monotheism, the third edition of which is out in November 2015. He also frequently shares his thoughts on recent scholarship with the wider public at his personal blog at larryhurtado.wordpress.com. He's here with us today to talk about God and New Testament theology. Dr. Hurtado, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Dr. Hurtado, at the beginning of your book, God and New Testament Theology, you quote from a 1975 essay by Nils Dahl. He says, quote, For more than a generation, the majority of New Testament scholars have not only eliminated direct references to God from their works, but have also neglected detailed and comprehensive investigation of statements about God. Whereas a number of major works and monographs deal with the Christology, or ecclesiology, eschatology, etc., of the New Testament, it is hard to find any comprehensive or penetrating study of the theme, God in the New Testament. End quote. Has there been, in your view, such a neglect, and if so, why? Well, I think it's a fair charge uh, that there has been a neglect. I, uh, to give a personal story, when I was asked to write uh, an article for a reference work, the, the article to be on God in the Gospels, I went through, uh, this is back in the early 90s, I think, I, I sat down and went through 20 years of uh, New Testament abstracts, which is sort of a reference work that you go looking for periodical literature dealing with the New Testament. Went through 20 years of it, and I found four articles, a total of four articles on uh, that seemed to per- pertain to God in one or another of the Gospels. Hmm. That was it. When I was asked to write the uh, God in New Testament Theology book, likewise, it was a comparatively simpler bibliographical task than for many other topics because still there are far fewer works on God in the New Testament than on almost uh, any other subject. Although Dahl's essay uh, did stimulate, has stimulated uh, other people to look at at questions about God in the New Testament. So since Dodd's essay, interestingly, and as a result of that essay, you do have you do have a few books on God in the New Testament, all of which I think I've cited in mine. And you have God, uh, focus studies on God in particular writings, like God in, you know, the Gospel of John, Marianne Mai Thompson's excellent book on that. Still, however, there are, there are whole books of the New Testament, which to the best of my knowledge, do not have a treatment of God in them. 
Epistle of the Hebrews, uh, the book of Revelation, for example, both of which are sizable texts, and, and in both of which the figure of God is quite an important, uh, quite an important uh, player, but uh, don't have uh, focused treatments on that. So I, I think it's a fair charge that God has been neglected. God, you know, the, the term God is pretty much taken for granted. That, well, we know what that is, so let's get on and talk about other things. So one of the things that I tried to do in my little book on God and New Testament theology is to begin by emphasizing we, we should not think that we know what the words G-O-D stand for in the New Testament. We should problematize that term and, may, and, and go at the New Testament asking, what is it or who is it that the New Testament writers are referring to when they talk about G-O-D? And speaking of that word, you put quotations around the capital G word God. Why did you do that? To try to point out that we don't know necessarily what the word means. So in the same way that I were to say, you know, if you use a term like, uh, you know, dyadic devotional pattern as I have, what do you mean by that? You'd put it in quotation marks and say dyadic. Can you please define what you mean? So I put quotation marks around God in order to say we're going to try to define what this word means in the New Testament. The word hatheos yeah. in the Greek New Testament. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because the term, uh, the Greek term uh, for God, theos, uh, and the Hebrew equivalent and Latin equivalents all are applied typically in the larger world of the first Christians to a, to a variety of beings. There are multiple deities. I mean, if you were to go out into the street today with a microphone and ask people, do you believe in God? You would probably get 90, 99.9%, at least of all people, would answer one of three ways. They would say yes or no, or I'm not sure. You would not find anybody probably who would say, can you please define for me what you mean by God or which God are we talking about? Mm -hmm. Which is the obviously prior question. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is a kind of, uh, you know, what, what uh, philosophers would mean by begging the prior question to go out into the street and ask such a question. But the reason we feel safe in doing that, of course, is, is because of the historic influence of Christianity in the Western culture which has taught most people to believe there's only one God to talk about. This God either does or does not exist, but there's only one God to talk about. But in the world of the New Testament and in the world of the ancient, of the ancient Christians at, at large, uh, there were multiple deities. And in many parts of the world to this day, of course, uh, outside of the North Atlantic communities, there are multiple deities. And so the first question is always, which of the many deities are we talking about? So that's why I wanted to put the word in quotes is to say when, when the New Testament talks about God, you know, in, in, in English, the capital G-O-D, uh, it's talking about a very particular deity that it goes out of its way to define quite specifically. And it is not the God of Leibniz. It is not the God of uh, a lot of contemporary thinkers. It is not the hoary thunderer in the heavens. It is not the God of cartoonists. It is not the God of Aristotle. It is not the God of Plato. It is a very particular deity, and this deity has a personal history that you have to understand. So for us, the word God has become almost like a proper name, but for them, it was a more flexible term. It could be used to refer to, you know, the unique source of everything or, or the God of the Jews, but it could also be used in many other ways and not so much later on. Yes, and, and as, as you indicated just a bit earlier, syntactically, the way that ancient Jews and early Christians typically who wrote in Greek or who spoke in Greek, when they wanted to distinguish the, in their view, the true and living God from other gods, they used a definite article. So it was the God in Greek, hotheos, 
uh, theos, meaning God or a God. And so, for example, the famous passage in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul says, though there may be many so-called gods and many so-called lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of all, and so on. So he's, he's distinguishing there between the, the hotheos, the God, as opposed to the many other gods. Ironically, it may be because of the success of Christianity, so to speak, in banishing the notion of multiple deities, of imposing the notion that there is only one God to question and to deal with, that has actually, in some sense, drained the word God of some of its specifics. Dr. Hurtado, when you began work on this book, you were a very accomplished scholar. You had spent decades working on early Christianity and the New Testament. Is there anything that surprised you when you really dug into this topic of God and the New Testament? I think that I it wasn't a surprise, but a kind of maybe more a, uh, hmm, I hadn't thought of it that way before kind of uh, notion. I came to see more clearly, uh, and, and it sort of brought to a higher level of consciousness than it had been before, how very much the uh, Christological statements and, and, and Jesus-oriented practices of the New Testament all have a fundamentally, emphatically theocentric basis. That any honorific statement made about Jesus in the New Testament is always premised on a either explicit or implicit conviction about God. God has, for example, exalted Jesus and made him Christ and Lord, and therefore the New Testament believers call him Christ and Lord, and so on. They reverence Jesus because they believe God has exalted him. And I think I, I became much more uh, aware that the Christological phenomena, the Jesus devotion phenomena with which I'd been so heavily occupied in the preceding 20, 25 years or so, how very much all of that can be seen as, and, sh and must be seen in terms of the New Testament uh, discourse, as all heavily based on this uh, theocentric basis and premise. Back to the neglect of God as a subject for theologians uh, to work on, do you think that that neglect is, is partly because the New Testament doesn't add a lot to the conception of God that's in the Old Testament? Well, there is, of course, a heavy uh, appropriation or continuation, affirmation of uh, the God of the, of, the old, of the Christian Old Testament, the God of the Scriptures of Israel, the God of the story of Israel. That is the deity that most of the Christians are talking about, barring, of course, uh, Marcionites and, uh, and, uh, and certain other early Christians. But the, certainly the Christians that we have witnessed in the New Testament and that came to form the so-called mainstream or orthodox Christianity that, that became more familiar, they're all affirming the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, uh, the, God, the creator God as the one true God. And, uh, and so everything that's said about this God in the Old Testament, they affirm. I would say, however, that there are some remarkable and distinguishing features of the way in which Christians talk about God in the New Testament that distinguishes their discourse 
uh, from the kind of discourse that we have in the Old Testament. Most emphatically, of course, the God whom they talk about is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to use the language of Paul. And so without denying that this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are great, they're, they're mightily concerned to say, this is the God who sent forth Jesus. This is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. This is, again, in Paul's language, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That accounts for why, for example, although father language is used in the Old Testament for God, he is the father of Israel or the father of the king and in Jewish sources, father language is there. But the frequency, the comparative frequency with which father language is used of God in the New Testament, is a, it's a phenomenal increase. And the reason for that, I think, is because the God, as described in the New Testament, is emphatically the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus being the ideal, true, unique son, capital S son, in whom and through whom then believers call upon God as father. So to turn around to say every Christological statement has a theological premise in the New Testament, every address or reference to God as father has a Christological premise. He is called father by Christians because he is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, it seems that the the fundamental theology of the one God as creator and so on is unchanged, but there's quite a different emphasis in how to relate to God. And, you know, it says at the end of John 1 that, that Jesus has made him known, like as in, as in made him personally known, made him familiar to believers in a way that wasn't known before. Well, certainly there are there are distinctions. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at the very least, phenomenologically, one can say that God is known in a way that he wasn't known before, at least along the lines that I just said, that God is known as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who sent him, the one who raised him from the dead, and the one who affirms him as the, as the universal Lord. That is a whole body of new things to say about this God, and he is known in that sense, in that new way, at the very least. Experientially, as well, the New Testament uh, claims, New Testament writers claim that God is related to in a new way. And uh, most particularly, of course, because the company of the redeemed, so to speak, those who, those who approach God in the New Testament are not only Jewish, but also Gentile. And in various New Testament writings, there is this notion, God is the God of Israel. They are his people par excellence. They have a special covenant with him. And the Gentiles are those who are, to cite the language of Ephesians, without God in this world. But through Jesus and through the gospel, they perceive themselves to have been enfranchised within this covenantal relationship with God and are also able to approach God as their father in the way in which Jews had done, you know, the, the, the standard Jewish prayer of Inu Bashamayama, our father in heaven, such as we're familiar with through the Lord's Prayer, is a familiar form of Jewish prayer. But the emphasis on God as father is that he is now through Jesus and through the gospel, he is now also father of all those who approach him, Gentile or Jewish. So there's that kind of extension of a unique covenantal, if you will, family, filial relationship, which now extends to, to us, so to speak, in the New Testament, us pagans, as well as to God's ancestral people. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why I think it is um, important and theologically meaningful 
to uh, distinguish legitimately between God the Father and Christ because the New Testament makes that distinction soteriologically essential. That is the nature of Christian salvation, that salvation and the believer's relationship to God is mediated through the unique son, Jesus. The the, uh, filial status, the sonship or adoptive status of believers is the sonship of Jesus extended to incorporate a larger body and as I say, when, when, if Christians do it intelligently, when Christians address God as Father, they do so implicitly, whether they know it or not, implicitly through the sonship of Jesus. And apart from that, if you don't take that seriously, then you, you have some sort of notion of a kind of unmediated, sentimental contact with God, as if, you know, you just approach God because uh, he's there. But the New Testament emphatically says that the relationship of the members of the ecclesia, those who are, who are part of the company of the redeemed, is a relationship with God that is offered and mediated through the Son, Jesus. This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. It seems to me that when I talk to friends, particularly some American evangelicals, they think that the theology of the New Testament is this. God, it turns out, is this Jewish man, and he's really nice, and he's he's our friend, he's our he's our pal, he's one of us. God is one of us, and when I look at the New Testament, I still see God as a scary and threatening figure. Even though he's the heavenly Father, he still is uh, somebody that needs to be approached through an intermediary. And in the New Testament, Jesus, the risen Jesus, is the intermediary between God and man. He's our means of access. And then the God is my buddy stuff just drops out. It doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, that sounds more like sentiment than theology. Uh, I mean, I would say that, that uh, you know... It's bad earlier, theology. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, would, I would say in answer to your, to your earlier statement, um, yes, you know, there are statements in the New Testament our God is a consuming fire. So think, well, it's kind of, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's not friendly, buddy. That's, that's potentially dangerous. And the judgment of God and God, but and also in, Christ. visible. But also Christ as judge. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that is the, the, the notion of judgment. Uh, isn't, you, you can't play off father and son against each other saying God is a meanie, but thank God for Jesus. He's a really nice guy because the Bible says we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ as well as the judgment seat of God. So both play a kind of judgmental in that sense or judiciary role. And the other thing to say is that you can't play them off against each other uh, as well because the New Testament emphatically, both uh, you know, key figures like Paul, but also Jesus and Hebrews, emphatically say that uh, God the Father, out of love for the world, out of redeeming purpose for the world, sent forth his Son or in the words of Paul, did not withhold his only son, but gave him up for us all. So mm-hmm. the loving, the powerful agape motivation on which the New Testament story of redemption rests is emphatically uh, the agape of God the Father. We know how much he loved us because he sent his son. Yeah. And the experience, the love of God poured forth, to use the language again of the New Testament, the love of God poured forth in our hearts by God's Spirit 
what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8. So there is, um, God is a force to be contended, to be contended with, of course, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not to be taken for granted. Mm-hmm. But this God is one who is fundamentally and finally known as a God of powerful, capable, redeeming love. Mm-hmm. And that emphasis on uh, God, one of the points I bring out in the, in, the, in the little book you mentioned about God and New Testament theology, another observation that I came to in looking at this God in the context of the gods of Rome and Greece and the, and the time of the early church is that it's very difficult to find, to put it mildly. I haven't found any actually, but I'll say it safely since I don't claim to know everything. It's very difficult to find statements in the so-called pagan religious context of early Christianity about any of the gods loving the world or loving people. You can find occasional statements about this or that deity being generous or merciful or kind or things like that, to be sure. But it is, it is very difficult. I actually haven't found any statements in which pagans refer to any of their deities as loving the world and loving them. Hmm. And yet this language of divine love, so to speak, is all over the New Testament. Mm -hmm. It is one of the most frequently recurring motifs that you have in the kind of discourse about God that you have in the New Testament. So again, when we say, how is this God distinguished from other gods of the time? There are some very powerful ways in which uh, one can make that clear. And to come back to your sentimental uh, Jesus is my girlfriend kind of um, <laughs> uh, notion, you know, uh, um, the, the buddy Jesus to cite uh, the great blasphemous but great film dogma, that is an unreflective sentimentalism. It is not a theologically fashioned, uh, I, I don't know of any real theological tradition on which it rests. It's, it's uh, popular piety. Examples of which go back to the very early church. I mean, it's interesting already in the so-called apocryphal literature of the New Testament, such as some of the apocryphal acts, Jesus is the God. And indeed, one of the classic studies of prayer in the early church noted that in the New Testament and in the texts that form, you know, the kind of classical Christian tradition, Justin, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and so on, the kind of great mainstream texts, Wherever you have prayers, his calculation was that about 90% of all of the prayers in this text are explicitly addressed to God the Father. In the apocryphal literature, his estimate was that something like about 80 to 90% of all the prayers are addressed to Jesus. And so the suggestion was that the apocryphal literature may well, some of the apocryphal literature at least, may well reflect more sort of populist, untutored versions of Christianity in which um, uh, Jesus is the God. That is certainly the case in a lot of uh, kind of populist, untutored Christianity down to our present time. But uh, it does not adequately represent the theological tradition of any (laughs) of the major traditions or schools of Christian thought, which, you know, name them, Calvinist, Wesleyan, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Reformed, Lutheran, uh, uh, even Pentecostal uh, tradition always emphasized the priority of God the Father and Jesus with reference to God. So, yeah, uh, I think what we're talking about here is a kind of um, sentimentalism 
And uh, I have to say that insofar as that sort of distortion is uh, affirmed or echoed, the people that have to bear the blame are those who are responsible to be Christian teachers. They haven't done their job very well. Hmm. It's interesting uh, that you mention some of the early apocryphal literature and how, uh, in a way, it focuses on Jesus to where it eclipses a focus on God the Father. When I read the more mainstream stuff, particularly Justin, uh, Origen, they seem to really strongly distinguish between Jesus and God. Origen, in his commentary on John, says that uh, God is hotheos, the God, and then yeah, the term theos applies to Jesus. I mean, you can translate that as a god or a divine being or other ways, but his point is that this word has many uses, but the one God is the Father. And so, even though he's going to call, he'll address Jesus as God, you know, because the New Testament occasionally addresses Jesus as God. Your throne, O God, is forever. God, your God, has exalted you, and so on. So, they do that, but they don't when they address Jesus using the term God, they, they turn right around and distinguish between the God and Jesus. Yes, to put it in another way, I guess, I hope I would capture meaning if I say, uh, you know, that the the ascription of a full, genuine, uh, however you want to call it, divine status to Jesus in the New Testament and in the classical Christian texts of the early period is never at the expense of God the Father. It's not a zero-sum game. So that uh, attributing divine status to Jesus does not mean diminishing and should not mean diminishing the uh, theological priority of God the Father. And the early Christians are always concerned to assert the, the principled priority of God the Father. Uh, and, and you have that even in the, uh, you know, the Nicene Creed. It is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So it is always Jesus as God or as light or as true God is with reference to God the Father, from whom he comes and whom he represents and to whom he points. Dr. Hurtado, in your view, do the New Testament writers assert or assume a new understanding of Judaic monotheism, that is the kind of monotheism we see in the books of Isaiah and Deuteronomy? Let me first say, just to be pedantic, of course, that in, in contemporary scholarly discussion, uh, particularly with reference to the New Testament or to Christianity, the term monotheism has become a problematic term. It has been for the last 15, 20 years or so with, with people such as my former colleague Peter Heyman and contemporaries and friends such as Paula Fredrickson saying that, that the term should not be used because the term, the classical dictionary definition of monotheism is the belief that there is only one God. And as Paula Fredrickson has observed, nobody in the ancient world was a monotheist in those terms. Jews and Christians do not go out of their way to deny the existence of other divine beings. They go out of their way to deny the legitimacy of them as recipients of worship. 
divine beings in the broad Old Testament sense? Well, like the, angels all I'm or? saying, all I'm saying is, you know, it's hard to get into their minds. All I'm saying mm -hmm. is they use the same language. They call them gods. They call who who gods? They call these other beings gods. Like the gods of uh, other religions. God, well, you know, the Qumran material, even the Psalms mm -hmm. refer to the gods, mm -hmm. Elim, in heaven sitting there with God, the divine council, mm -hmm. who God's privy council, so to speak, uh, heavenly beings. And one of the terms that's used for them is they are Elim, they are gods. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the New Testament, Paul refers to, you know, many so-called gods or whatever. He can refer to the God of this world. Mm -hmm. It appears a kind of uh, Satan figure. So they use the same terminology and without a hiccup, without saying, now when I say this, of course, I don't really mean it. No, no, they use the terminology. So uh, the genus, so to speak, is gods and mm -hmm. of which there can be multiple instances. But they distinguish the, uh, the one that, you know, so that this is why they use the language of the true and living God. Mm-hmm or the one true God, mm -hmm. uh, meaning by that the one deity who is, uh, who is the creator of all things, the ruler of all things, and categorically distinguishable from, from all things, including other gods. So uh, when you talk about monotheism, Fredrickson and others would say, therefore, it's inappropriate to use the term monotheist or monotheism to describe these people because they talk about other gods. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. In, in that sense, if you, I mean, the term monotheism, as, as has been noted, the term monotheism is sort of invented sometime, I think, in the 18th century. Uh, it never appears in English before then. And is a term used in the colonial expansion of European powers when they are trying to come up with categories by which to categorize different kinds of religious expression. One of the distinctions they make are monotheisms and polytheisms. It's a way of looking at the uh, at the at the world that they encounter as they as they pursue their colonial expansion, so if you say, well, okay, it's an inappropriate term. Okay, they use one god language, and they distinguish this one god not only in language but more importantly in in their uh, devotional practice from any other being to whom that term might be applied. And uh, if you're saying, well, is there a is there a uh, uh, difference in the way in which early Christians do this, the way in which they distinguish the one true deity from other deities? Is there a distinction between the way they do it and the way in which it is done in the Old Testament? Um, yes, along the lines that I was, that I was indicating earlier, the, the primary way in which they distinguish this deity and the primary way in which their devotional practice is distinguished is by the incorporation of Jesus in a unique status in the economy or purposes of God and likewise, in a unique way, in uh, their devotional practice. The sort of dyadic, as I've called it, dyadic devotional practice in which you have worship offered and, devo and, and discourse about God the Father and Jesus, that is clearly a distinguishable, sharply distinguishable uh, feature of early, earliest Christian devotional practice in comparison to the Jewish, uh, larger Jewish matrix in which it first appears. So is your answer basically then that, no, it's it's not really a new type of monotheism because what you had in the Jewish Bible is there are in some sense many Elohim, uh, but one of them is utterly unique and is the creator, and that's Yahweh. And this is still the one God in the New Testament. Of course, we have better access to him now, and he's better known now because he sent his son 
But is the monotheism really the same then? Well, if we want to use that word, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. You don't like uh, the question. <laughs> well, well, as I say, the term, mono, the term monotheism has been made problematical. I've used it. I mean, I used it in the title of my 1988 book. I talk about mm -hmm. ancient Jewish monotheism. And subsequently, other people have said, but you can't use the word monotheism because monotheism means you don't believe in other gods, but you don't know that these people denied the existence of other gods. Uh, okay. In an article that I published about a year or so ago, I, I engaged this debate again and said, but please note, I did not refer to monotheism. I referred to ancient Jewish monotheism. Mm -hmm. Monotheism, if you want to say, the dictionary definition of monotheism means denying the existence of other deities. Ancient Jewish monotheism consists in saying, however many deities you may think there are, only one is worthy of worship. So its focus is on a cultic scruple. It's not, if you look at the Old Testament, even in passages like Isaiah and so on, which appear at times, there is, you know, I am God and there is no other. As has been shown, the phrase there in Hebrew, there is no other, doesn't necessarily mean to deny the existence of other gods, but it means mm -hmm. simply there is no other that matters. You know, as they say, sorry for if this sounds a bit rude, but it's, it's religious pillow talk. When the lover says, you are the only woman in the world, that isn't strictly true, a philosopher might say, but it is existentially true. He means you are the only woman in the world for me, the only woman worthy of my love and devotion. And when uh, ancient Jews made that statement, there is, only, there is you know, only Yahweh and there is no other, they meant there is no other deity that is worthy of worship. And they meant not only uh, worthy of worship by Israel, but rightfully worthy of worship by the whole world. Mm -hmm. So it was a universal cultic exclusivity that they were advocating and proclaiming. And uh, the focus in, in so-called ancient Jewish monotheism, as I've defined it, therefore, is this emphasis on worship rather than an emphasis on denying the existence of other beings. I've also argued that in the New Testament and in early Christianity, we have a new wrinkle in ancient Jewish monotheism, a mutation so that we can refer to early Christian monotheism as distinguishable in some sense from ancient Jewish monotheism in that it is a form of, uh, if, if monotheism is sort of ancient Jewish monotheism means a cultic practice, early Christian monotheism is a cultic practice in which you have two figures who are programmatically uh, the recipient of cultic devotion and about whom exclusivist religious claims are made, God, the Father, and Jesus. And that is, I think, a significant mutation, a significant development. Dr. Hurtado, in the New Testament, it looks like earliest Christian practice veers away from the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. And so it looks like the Christians then aren't continuing to stick with that part of the Ten Commandments. In your view, did they also set aside the first commandment in which Yahweh says to only worship me? I don't think they understood themselves to be doing that. I think that they go out of their way to try to say that uh, they are still faithful 
to the uniqueness of the one God, both in belief and in religious practice. Uh, and, and when and if challenged, well, then how dare you, how do you possibly uh, think it legitimate to reverence Jesus in the way that you do alongside God? Doesn't that add up to two? Their answer, it seems to me, is uh, pretty clearly, uh, we do this because God requires us to do it. So we're, we're still professing the uniqueness of this one God. This unique one God commands us to reverence his son, Jesus. What else are we supposed to do? So in a way, their answer is we're worshiping God by worshiping the one that God has exalted. Yes, and that is what I think. Uh, that is what I think. The Philippians, a famous Philippians passage is getting at in saying that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is curious to the glory of God the Father. The reverencing of Jesus properly done, properly understood, is an acknowledgement of the one, of the uniqueness of the one God whom he manifests and whom he represents and to whom he brings us in a filial relationship. Dr. Hurtado, some of the things that you say in various of your books make me think, and I'm, I'm probably over-interpreting here, but they make me think sometimes that you think that in the New Testament, Jesus is a part of God. So, for instance, on the last page in your book, God and New Testament Theology, you say, quote, from Jesus' resurrection onward, quote, God in some profound way includes a glorified human, end quote. Is that your view that Jesus in the New Testament is something like a non-essential part of God, that he, he comes to be a part of God when he's exalted? Well, to stay with the, the, the narrative world of the New Testament, Jesus is referred to in various texts uh, and sometimes in the same text and in the body of text that is described to Paul, for example, which is some of our earliest literature. Jesus is referred to as, I take it, as, as having a kind of pre-existent, status, the one through whom the world, the one Kyrus through whom the world was made, 1 Corinthians 8, and, you know, and more faith in the form of God, Philippians 2. So some kind of divine pre-existence. And then in the same body of text in Paul's writings, for example, this pre-existent figure is born genuinely human, is Jesus of Nazareth, and so takes on a human narrative. And then, to proceed further, he genuinely dies and is pictured as resurrected by God and exalted to heavenly glory. Now, bodily resurrection, Paul emphasizes, bodily resurrection of the Lord. Now, that body is a eschatological body, transformed, immortal, and so on and so on. But nevertheless, an embodied existence. And the point is, it is the man Jesus who is raised from the dead and is exalted at the right hand of God. So certainly from that point onward, there is a glorified human figure who is given to share in the glory of God, seated at God's right hand, and to be reverenced along with God as, as the unique expression of God. So there's a sense in which the definition of who is God, what are his purposes, what is God doing, what does God, so to speak, comprise, is um, extended to incorporate the figure of Jesus as the unique uh, agent of divine purposes and the one who uniquely is given to bear the title Kyrios and uniquely to receive divine worship. So there is a sense in which if you say, I'm a monotheist and I only worship one God, and you also offer worship to Jesus or you incorporate Jesus into your worship practice, then there's a sense in which functionally you have incorporated Jesus into what God, so to speak, represents. 
So he's playing divine roles in that he's in charge of the church and the world, according to the New Testament. So he's included in, in divine roles, but is he included in the divine being? See, there you go again. <laughs> there we are slipping off the narrative world of the New Testament into the abstract categories of the late third, let's say, and fourth century and thereafter of being, of essence, and so on. And you see how, on the one hand, how, how difficult it is to avoid that kind of question, uh, particularly in light of, of, the, of the history of Christian theological discussion, which, is, which has um, been shaped by those categories from the third, fourth century onward. But if the task is, is to say, if we work with the New Testament and the task is to say, what kind of language, what kind of terminology is being used in the New Testament and what are their conceptual categories, which I would prefer to do in a book called God and New Testament Theology, then I think we have to say, as I said before, Jesus is incorporated into the purposes and the actions and in a sense, almost the definition thereby of God in a unique kind of way. Who is God? As I say, God is redefined. God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a different way of referring to God than to say God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's one way of referring to him. Mm -hmm. And it's not one that they reject. But in the New Testament, there's this additional way of saying to him, and he is uniquely the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way you define God. So God gets redefined, so to speak, in some sense, with reference to Jesus viewed in a different light, if not redefined. Not redefined in the sense of rejecting the previous definition, mm -hmm. but redefined in the sense of you must also say this. And I would say, as I, as I think I've said at some place in, in the little book, the refusal to uh, acknowledge Jesus, the refusal, any conscious refusal to define God with reference to Jesus would be an inadequate definition of God. Uh, would be a disobedient response to the one God. Because this one God, this one God has declared Jesus to be his unique son, declared him to be the Kyrios, uh, and has identified himself, so to speak, or, or is identified in the New Testament writings with reference to Jesus. Dr. Hurtado, in my own work, I've kind of explored ways that different Trinitarians understand the creedal trinity formulas and it seems to me that some will say you know three persons in one substance it's just three of something within god we, we say person because we don't have anything better to say uh so if you want to know how many selves how many agents are there how many figures if you like they'll well we don't really know but there's three something in there other trinitarians like bart or Rahner, it seems to me really think that there's one self and that the quote persons of the trinity are kind of ways that God eternally lives and interacts and reveals himself. They say God reveals himself as Trinity. And so it looks like there's one self there and the persons are, well, whatever they are, they're not selves. Um, and then you've got people uh, very often that fly the flag of social Trinitarianism. They really do think the Father and Son are different selves, that they have different points of view. They, they do different things. There are other differences between them. They're friends, even, although in a, in a master-servant kind of way. In your view, does your work support one of these over the other? Or does it, how do you view it in relation to these different approaches to the Trinity? Well, I'm honestly not uh, ducking the issue. It's, it's, it's genuinely the case that I listen to my colleagues 
talk about these various religious about these various theological schools and figures. I have done some occasional reading, serious reading in theology in previous years. Particularly, I, you know, in doctoral programs, had had some work on Bart, and have read a few other figures uh, at least a bit. But I, I honestly, it's not false modesty. I honestly do not have a sufficient fingertip expertise in any of these figures that you've referred to. Certainly not Rahner, von Baldassar, or even the social trinitarian people to, to be able to say this is what they really mean, and yes or no my thoughts coincide with them. So I'm, I'm simply going to have to say I'm not competent to say myself where my work in, in exploring earliest Christian discourse and practices sits or how well it sits with other subsequent thinkers. I think that would be for them to say. And I am pleased to, to, to learn that although my books are primarily, as I say, intended to try to orient us to earliest historical phenomena, I have had emails from theologians in Boston College and Marquette and other places saying, oh, wow, you know, all of us in the department here are reading your Lord Jesus Christ book. We really think it's stimulating. Uh, So, and that's sort of been a bit of a surprise. I mean, for one thing, of course, for somebody to commit themselves to read a 600-page book is a, is, is a, a work of devotion anyway. But I've been, in some sense, surprised, of course, pleasantly surprised to find that some theologians, at least, are are going into it and looking at it and thinking, gee, this poses new ways of thinking about things. So it will be for theologians, I think, to try to judge where they think my work and the work of other people who do similar things sits and how helpful it may or may not be and where it may best line up. I will go this far. I would tend to think, based on the limited experience that I've had, in talking to theologians and in reading things, that contemporary theology, with perhaps a few exceptions, has not still not adequately engaged the discourse and the data of earliest Christianity. I mean by that Christianity of the first 100, 100, 150 years or so, the first and second century. It still has not adequately engaged the text, the data, and the phenomena of that period and that there may still be ways in which reflective theology or constructive theology can profit and go on to say further things, perhaps, <laughs> were uh, that sort of engagement to take place. That's an interesting uh, complaint that you have. I mean, do you think that later, later interests, later disputes have obscured the early sources that have, they've gotten in the way? I think so. I think that, as I say, the classic, what is regarded often as the classic period of Christological debate and discussion often starts with the Arian controversy uh, and, its, and its subsequent developments. Indeed, often starts with the Cappadocian fathers and proceeds downstream from there. The first 100, 150 years seen as kind of, um, I don't know, a kind of prolegomena or warm-up period. I mean, if you look at Grillmeyer's Christ and Christian Tradition, for example, classic study of Christ and Christian Tradition, it's pretty clear that that's how this period is being treated. They're warming up in the bullpen. The, the game doesn't really start until the fourth century. And I think that that's a mistake. I think that the reason for that may be varied. You certainly have larger, fuller, 
more elaborate discussions of that period. And so it may be that it's simply easier, in some sense, perceived to be an easier or more interesting body of text to engage because at that point, really serious philosophical, theological, detailed discussion is going on by often powerful intellects such as the Cappadocian fathers really were. No question. And in comparison, the writings of the New Testament, of Ignatius, even of Justin, and even of Irenaeus and Tertullian will often seem by comparison, I don't know, simple, elementary, not... Uh, Pedestrian? Whatever. You know, just, just not, as, um, not as elaborate, not as, not as fascinating, maybe. But the point I was trying to make in the little book on God and New Testament theology is, hey, guys, there's actually more there than first meets the eye. It will require some adjustment of your lens. You may have to put on a different set of eyeglasses to look at it. But if you look at this stuff carefully, there's actually more here than meets the eye. There's a great deal of theological profundity in these texts. And indeed, even in theological complexity, as I say, how do you hold together the sort of thing that the Gospel of John does, which portrays a Jesus who can be killed, who weeps at the, at the death of his friend, uh, etc.? and who is described as the one through whom the worlds were made. How the hell do you hold that together? This author did, and yet being able to do that is going to require some real pondering. So I, I've pled that these texts are worthy of much more attention than they've characteristically been given. And I think that there would be some potential theological payoffs to be gained from theologians committing themselves to, uh, to working with these texts very, very closely and trying to do so in their own terms. It requires a real effort to try to lay aside, so to speak, the spectacles through which these texts are often read, which are the spectacles of the 4th and 5th century. But take off those spectacles and try to put on spectacles of the 1st and 2nd century. Try to adjust ourselves to the categories, the the intellectual categories and properties and issues of that period. And to do so requires some real discipline and effort, but I think that it's worth the payoff to do so. Let me give you an example of someone who has in his own way tried to do so. Uh, I'm not saying it's the last word on the subject, but it, you may know Richard Baucom's stuff on Jesus being included in the divine identity. Mm -hmm. Now, I have some continuing dialogue with Baucom over this, but the thing I would want to say is what he has tried to do, if you follow him carefully, he explicitly says, I'm not using ontological categories. I'm specifically not addressing, uh, not invoking ontological categories. When I say Jesus is included in the divine identity, he emphasizes, I'm saying you have to understand divine identity as it was defined in the Jewish tradition, which he asserts consisted primarily in saying God is defined as the sole unique creator of all things and as the sovereign of all things. These are the two essential features of divine identity. He's saying, that's what I mean when I say Jesus is included within the divine identity. He says, I mean specifically, he has ascribed an integral role in the creation of the world, which is otherwise exclusively God the Father's, and he has inscribed an integral programmatic role in the rule or sovereignty of the world. And in these two particular attributes, you might say, Jesus can therefore be thought of as included within the divine identity. Now, we can debate, we can discuss how adequate that is or whatever, but you see what I mean? That, I think, is a creative attempt to try to engage 
the theological question, and Richard is not only an accomplished historian of ancient Christianity and so on, but is a bona fide theologian as well, who's written, as you may know, books on Moltmann and history of Christian thought and so on. Mm -hmm. He is an example of a person attempting to approach the New Testament and earliest Christian religious discourse with the question of a theologian, but attempting to respect their categories and try to avoid imposing the, let's say, ontological categories of the fourth century, for example. So I, w I would point to that as an example of, of somebody tr trying to do that, trying to put off or put aside the spectacles, so to speak, of the fourth century and put on first century and second century spectacles and do justice to those texts in those terms. Dr. Hurtado, thank you for talking with us. Welcome. This week's Thinking Music has been the track Modulation of the Spirit by Little Glass Men. You can listen to or download that track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. What did you think about my interviews with Dr. Larry Hurtado? If you'd like to send me some audio feedback in any sort of audio file, there's a link at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can just upload me that file. And if it's worthwhile and on time, we'll include it in next week's episode. And I'm very happy to say that next week, I'll be presenting the first of two interviews with the leading Christian philosopher and analytic theologian, Dr. Brian Leftow of Oxford University. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>